I invite you to turn to the Old Testament this week, to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're not sure where that is, if you open up your Bible right about in the middle, you'll be in Psalm something or other, and you just go to the right, a couple of books, you'll see the book of Proverbs, and then you will see the book of Ecclesiastes. Please stand with me as we hear from the Word of God. The Word that is living and powerful, sufficient and authoritative. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, from verses 1 to 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, and goes around to the north, Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use this word inspired by your Spirit, to teach us of our sufficiency in you and of your matchless grace. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. When I was a child, I was never one for amusement parks. Some of you perhaps were exactly the same way. Others of you couldn't wait to stand in line to get on the roller coaster and go and do it again and again and again. For me, it was more go and see the park and watch others on the rides and do things. And occasionally, I would make the mistake of being convinced to get on some ride or another. And I can remember one occasion, I was in one of these rides where you're stuck up against the wall and it spins around, it keeps you stuck on the wall. Well, normally I guess what happens from watching when others run it, what people do is they look and they look around and want to see the expressions on other people's faces and enjoy it. Well, for me, it was more like this. Is it done? Is it done? Is it almost done? Can I get done? Is it almost done? I didn't want anything to do with the ride. I just wanted it to be over. And if I could have said, stop the ride so I can get off, I would have done it. There was a little pull switch, like in movies with trains. You probably have experienced that, something like that at some point, or seen it with someone, 
And perhaps even you've experienced that in an aspect of your life. Because you see, life can be kind of like that ride at times. It seems to be spinning out of control. There seems to be no purpose to it. There could be difficulties, even for those who have a deep faith in the Lord. But you know that ride? That ride never stops for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. They can say all they want, stop the world, I want to get off. And the world never stops. There never is any meaning. It is, as the preacher says, vanity of vanities, meaninglessness and meaninglessness. All is meaningless. And so we come this morning to this book of Ecclesiastes. Your familiarity might be to it through some sort of popular culture reference. It's very applicable to our day. Some of you that are a little older will flip the page and look at chapter 3 and think, oh, the birds, turn, turn, turn. Others of you will look, look at the text we're looking at today and seeing the river flow will think, sting, as the river flow. Others of you that are classically trained might think of Macbeth. Life being a tale told by an idiot, signifying nothing, full of sound and thunder. You see, this book strikes us at the heart of where we live. Because it is applicable today to you and to me. And I would like to put it to you that I would hope as we unfold this book over the next few months that you will see that this is perhaps one of the most evangelical books in the Old Testament. It is a mission-oriented book. You see, the preacher, he is one who will not let you off the hook. He doesn't give you a quick answer. We're actually going to have to preview the answer today to see grace and mercy. He doesn't let you off the hook chapter after chapter as he presses home questions. But in the end, he says there is an answer to my questions. And it is found in the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I would like us to see this morning is what the world is like without God. And the alternative that's provided to us in the Lord. First thing we're going to see is the perfect tour guide under the sun. And then we will look at life under the sun. The life that we live under the sun. And then we will see the world under the sun. What does nature look like in a view without God? And then finally we will see what history looks like without a view of God. History under the sun. Well, let us first look then at the perfect tour guide under the sun. Who is the author of this book? Well, it's a bit interesting. It's the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is an interesting book that causes no end of consternation to commentators because they're so depressed that the man didn't put his name down in letters. And all sorts of arguments go back and forth. Well, he was a Greek. Well, no, I think he was a Persian. Well, I think he was a pagan. No, he was this man. No, he was about nine men putting it together. But I think, as often is the case with the scriptures, I would invite you to just look to the simple answer. Who is he? He is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And notice in verse 12, he is king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I would put it to you that there is only one man who fits that qualification. If you were a detective... He would have to be a king, a son of David, a king in Jerusalem over Israel. That's only Solomon. Because 
after Solomon, the kingdom was what? Divided. And who reigned in Jerusalem? But the king of Judah. The king of Israel reigned in the north. So there's only one man that fits the bill. And as we go through the text, it'll become very obvious because this man is obviously, this preacher is a man of wealth. Well, isn't Solomon a man of wealth? He's described actually as the wealthiest man on the face of the earth in the book of Chronicles. Well, who is he? He is a man of wisdom. The word wisdom or wise is used 44 times in this book. It occurs everywhere. And he's described as one who sought wisdom, verse 13 of chapter 1, and who got it, verse 16. Well, who does that describe but Solomon? But Solomon is a one who is, let us not forget, a son of David. And let us not forget that as we think about the baptism we had this morning. To be a son of David meant that he had confidence. It meant that he had a proper upbringing. David, with all of his difficulties and sin, taught the word of God to his son. His dying words to his son in 1 Kings chapter 2 were of faithfulness to the Lord. His experience is one that is varied. You see, this word here, the preacher, really can't be translated. They say the preacher because most of us don't like to look at Koholath, which is how some translate it. Because it could mean assembly convener. It could mean president. It could mean preacher. It could mean any number of things. We think it has something to do with someone who speaks before the assembly. Because, of course, this is the only place in the Scripture that this particular word occurs. And so, this is someone who is dealing with people. That's why this, his words cut so sharply to us. But I would like you to also think about one thing as you remember Solomon. I think one commentator makes a very good point when he says that the preacher, the assembly gatherer, the one who speaks before the assembly, is one who tells his story to the assembly. And it is a story of repentance. Of having tried everything else and seen the vanity in it. I believe that this is Solomon writing in his very later years. After he has tried everything. Money. Gardens. Buildings. Hundreds of wives, thousands of concubines. He's tried everything and found them all wanting. And he comes back in humility and says to the people, I was wrong. Yes, I'm the king and I was wrong. There's only one answer to life and that's found in God. This is the perfect tour guide for us of life under the sun for he has tasted it all. You can't say, well, if I just had money, things would be better. Did it, done it, got the t-shirt. Well, if I just was smarter, did it, done it, got the t-shirt. Well, if I just had authority and people respected me, done that too. Solomon has covered all of our bases for us. And so he describes for us what life is like under the sun. And it's in verse 2. It's the motto of the book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What is the big picture? Meaninglessness. The word here for vanity is meaninglessness, worthlessness, 
purposelessness. It actually is used to describe the wind, a vapor, something you can't get your hands on, something you're not sure is really of real substance. It is futility, we might say. It's what the earth has been subject to because of sin. Paul tells us in Romans 8 and verse 20, he says the earth is now subject to futility, to vanity, to meaninglessness because of sin. Not the way it should be, not the way it once was, not the way it will be, but the way it is now. This word vanity is also used of idols. Habakkuk speaks of idols. He says they are vain, they are worthless, they are meaninglessness. This is the meaning of life without God. It is life under the sun. And as if the point needed to be pressed home further, notice how the preacher says it. He says, vanity of vanities. And he repeats it twice to get our attention. Why doesn't he just say meaninglessness? Some translations do that. They don't translate the vanity of vanities. They just say meaninglessness or futility. It's because in Hebrew, if you wanted to say something to the highest degree, you use this construction. What was the innermost part of the tabernacle? It was the holy of holies, was it not? Who is the Lord God? He is the king of kings, is he not? He is the greatest king. There is none beyond him. So what Solomon is saying here is, Without God, life under the sun is as meaningless as you can get. And it's not just that bad things are meaningless, or some things are meaningless, or other people pursue meaningless things. He says what? All is vanity. Every single thing and every single thing put together, everything is vain. Now, lest you say, well, Solomon here, wait a minute, everything is vanity. Does that mean praying is vanity? Does that mean reading the scriptures is vanity? Does that mean ministry is vanity? No, the key to understanding this book and this passage is this phrase in verse 3. Under the sun. You see, what Solomon says is, life viewed from the horizon of the world, never looking up, just looking under the sun, is meaningless. Life apart from God, Life apart from knowing God and being known by God is completely meaningless. He says, and he's going to stretch this out for us over several chapters, that there is no alternative to the biblical faith but this, but meaningless. It is the view from the ground. And what is the view from the ground? Look at verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Under the sun, without God, there is toil. And yes, toil is a good translation. Because it's not just work. It's backbreaking, painful, annoying, difficult work. Does that make you kind of tired and miserable just thinking about that? Think of your worst job. Maybe you don't like to pull weeds. And you've got to pull an acre of them. And it's 95 degrees. And there's all these little bugs, you know, they can't see them. You can't even swat them because they're so small. In your hair, in your eyes. That's toil under the sun. You know the saying, no pain, no gain. Well, what Solomon says is life under the sun is pain, but no gain. 
He says, what is the gain from all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The word here for gain is a term taken from economics. It's profit. It's what's left over for you after you work. And he says, what's the profit here? Well, the answer, of course, is nothing. Our Lord picks up on this, a familiar verse to many of you. He says, what does it profit a man to what? Gain the whole world if he lose his soul. You see, in that sense, our Lord wasn't being original. He was drawing upon the word of God. Can you see again why this is an evangelical book? What does it profit you to toil? Why? Because there's a saying that even people in the world know. You can't take it with you, can you? You can labor and labor and toil and toil, but there comes a point where you can't take it with you. Jesus says in John 6, he says, don't labor for the food that perishes. If you're laboring today for food that perishes, Solomon and I call you away from that. It's vanity. It's meaningless. Whoever dies with the most toys does not win. He loses. Only he who has the Lord wins. You see, the view from the ground is not just toil. It's what we might call the march of the dead. He says a generation goes and a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. We might put it this way. Life seems so short, doesn't it? Some of you that have walked with the Lord for many more years than I have know this. You've seen children be born, seen them grow up, seen them have children. Perhaps you've even seen them start to grow up. You look back at pictures of your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. Some of you that are older know people that span perhaps 150 or 200 years when you think of great-grandparents and grandparents you knew and grandchildren and great-grandchildren you know. Life seems so short. It's a blink of an eye. How many times have you said this to yourself or someone else with children? You better watch them because you're going to blink your eyes and what? They're going to be grown up and gone. Life is short. You see, we see this more and more. And the earth remains forever. What does that mean? You see, sometimes an answer apart from God, is this. Well, I just want to leave the world a better place than when I found it. What Solomon says is a generation comes and a generation goes. And the earth remains forever. Leaving the world a better place is not meaning in life. It's meaninglessness. We were watching a television show. My wife and I. It was the show where they uh, build a house for a family. Home makeover. So many things now on television are decorating a house, buying a house, building a house. But part of the story was a young boy who had died in a car accident. And one of the great blessings that had come out of that was he was an organ donor and had donated a heart to a young girl who then drew a beautiful picture for the family. And they said, at least there's some meaning in his death. I don't mean to sound harsh, but apart from God, that 19-year-old girl is going to grow old. And she's going to die. And there's going to be nothing remaining of that boy and that heart he gave. You see, we all die. Our buildings crumble. Our land erodes away. 
Generation comes and generation goes. This is life under the sun. What we also see then, Solomon moves from life to the world. He says, well, if you don't get it, let me paint a big panoramic picture for you. He says, the sun rises and the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. He says, you want to think about something else? Do you think constant movement helps? Some of us try and live our lives that way. We're always on the go. We're trying to drown out difficulties, drown out sorrows by going on to the next project, going on to the next house, going on to the next job, going on to the next town. We think if we just stay on the move and don't collapse, then the pain will stay in the background. That's how most of America lives its life, apart from God. But you see, Solomon says, look at the sun. It rushes, it hastens. The word here is it's out of breath going across the sky. And what happens the next day? Right back where it started. The rat race is not from point A to point B. It's more like a hamster wheel. You go round and round and round and round. You never go anywhere. That's what Solomon says. He says, well, what about recycling? He says, what about the wind? The wind blows to the south. And listen to the language. The wind blows to the south, and it goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits. And that word in the Hebrew is the same word like for around. He's saying, and around and around and around she goes. And where she stops, nobody knows, because she keeps going and going and going and going. Life is the Energizer Bunny isn't funny, fun either. There's no meaning in that. You just go round and around and around. Well, what about something else? What about streams? They go from one place to the other. He says, they run to the sea. But you know what happens? The sea's not full. You see, the streams don't start again. They don't go around in a circle. Streams are powerful, and they're always continually supplying new water. But you know what? It doesn't fill up the sea. Even constant repetition, where you think you might be making progress, is meaningless. It's vanity. It's said that one of the worst punishments, apart from death, that the Nazis used in the death camps, what broke men was to get a group of prisoners and to tell them to dig a hole there. And then they told them to take the dirt and fill the hole there. And the next day they told them to dig it up and fill that hole. And to dig that up and fill that hole. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Meaningless. No purpose. It drove men insane. You would think that a harsher punishment would be worse, but no. That sort of vanity drives us insane. Contrast this with the biblical view of the Psalms. What does creation do? It praises God. You remember Psalm 96. We use it often as a call to worship or as a psalter selection. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything that is in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. You see, the biblical view of creation is praising God. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows close themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy to the Lord. You see, the other biblical view of creation is that it's a part of God's redemptive story. Look at Psalm 78 this afternoon. 
It talks about God and what he did with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and how he provided food and how he provided water and how he did this and how he did that as a part of his redemptive story. You see, to the Christian, creation is not meaninglessness going around and around. It is a venue that praises the creator. That's what you are called to see in the world. Not the world under the sun, but a world under God. What then happens outside of nature? Perhaps we as people can make a difference and get away from vanity and meaninglessness. Well, Solomon looks then at history under the sun in verse 8. He says, all things are full of weariness. Oh, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. You know what Solomon says? He says, apart from God, life is boring. You know who especially needs to hear that today? You kids. Especially you teenagers. Apart from God, life is boring. You may think it's not boring, that the parties are fun, that the cars are fast, that the gadgets are cool, but you know what? You talk to people 20 or 30 years later who have every gadget known to man. They had plasma TVs before you even knew there was a plasma TV. They got cars that go 0 to 200 in 4.2 nanoseconds. And you know what? They're bored to death. They have parties every night. They move from one drug to the next drug. Even alcohol isn't enough. They move from marijuana to cocaine to heroin. They're just trying to find that excitement, that rush. And you know what they find? Boredom. You all have seen it, and it's true in some of these commercials, these anti-drug commercials. They show people that are lost on this. And what are they doing? They're sitting on a couch like this. Ugh. That's life, apart from God. It's boring. It shouldn't surprise us because that's not what we're built for. What are we built for? To glorify God and what? Enjoy Him. Life is not meant to be boring. It's meant to enjoy the Lord. That is your meaning in life. But it's not just boredom, it's a lack of satisfaction. Some of you that are my age or a little bit older, already thickened in your mind, probably some of you. I can't get no satisfaction, the Rolling Stones say. It was true then, it's true today. I can't get no satisfaction. I tried everything. Solomon says, my eye isn't satisfied, my ear isn't satisfied. Why is this? Well, I think there are two things we might want to just think about briefly. The first is, we might even call them laws. There's the law of unfulfilled expectations. Right? You can't wait to buy that new car. Looks so good in the showroom. Right? Get it home. Drive it around for a week or two. Not as new and shiny as it was. Right? First time something breaks down. Not as neat as it might be. Buy that new house. First time the toilet overflows. This is supposed to work. It's brand new. That's what life is like, apart from God. We have these expectations that this is going to solve the God-shaped hole in our heart. Augustine, writing 1,500 plus years ago, had this nailed to a T. You know what he said? He said, we cannot find our rest unless we find our rest in you. It was true then. It's true today. You won't find rest. You won't find satisfaction apart from God. 
Because the journey never ends. You see, we never arrive. But it's not just that there's nothing new. We're bored and we have no satisfaction. Solomon says there's nothing worth remembering either. Now that strikes us as odd, especially those of us that have gigabytes of digital pictures of kids and vacations and perhaps home movies and family trees. Nothing worth remembering. He says what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. You know, there's a saying for this too. I think there's a Frenchman that read Ecclesiastes. You know what he said? Translated, it's the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right? That's what life is. What do we say about those who don't learn the lessons of history? They're condemned to repeat them. If you look back through history, you'll see kind of a cyclical flow. Things happening over and over again. You see, there's really nothing new under the sun. Solomon's not saying, no, you'll never invent a computer. What he's saying is, you might invent a computer, but it's really not going to change things. You might think inventing a computer will solve all of life's problems. You see, some people out there, and I've referred this to you before, it's Star Trek theology. That someday we're going to find some drug, or some technique, or some nerve, that is going to solve all the problems caused by sin. And there'll be no more hate, and no more greed, and no more want, and everyone will be perfect, and we'll go out and explore the galaxy, and meet people with pointy ears. That's not real life. Real life is, you buy a new computer, and you still have problems in your marriage. Real life is, you have much more efficient ways to cook at home, and your children still disobey. Right? There's even incredible progress in things like baseball gloves for kids. But you know what? It doesn't solve fighting on the field. This is life, history apart from God. And it's not just circumstances, what has been. Even it's our actions, what has been done. You see, Solomon says whether it's what you try to do or what you see around you, it doesn't change. And you see, that's the problem with trying to leave a legacy apart from God. That was something that kings in Solomon's day were in the business of. The Romans are famous for this. They want to be known, they build a huge building. They build a coliseum. They build a big arch. They build a huge bridge. And they figure they'll be known forever. There's a poem by Percy Bishelli that I think I've mentioned to you before called Osmandius where he says, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Now them, on the sand. Half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip, a sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped yet on lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear, My name is Osmandius, King of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. There's nothing there. What does that mean then for us? We're not going to be kings. No one's going to sculpt us in the desert. 
I'll give you one very practical application. If we build the building that we are praying for, and we do it as a legacy to ourselves, so that others will look and see we were here, nothing will come of it. It will rot, it will erode, and it will be gone. That's not the kind of legacy that we leave. You see, contrast that with a biblical view of legacy. A legacy of ministry. You see, history is going somewhere. It is not going round and around as we see under the sun. History is headed like a freight train for the day of the Lord. The day when Jesus Christ will be magnified. He will be known and seen by all as the name above all names. The King of Kings. That is where history is going. Do you see that? Do you believe that? Are you excited about that? Solomon is. He says, apart from that, it's meaningless. Don't try and find any meaning. What was, will be. What you did, you'll do again. He says, history is purposeful because of God. Because God is in control. Because God has a purpose. You see, apart from that, even things are forgotten. He says, there's no remembrance of former things. Think about it. How many of you know the intricate details of the kings of France from the 14th century? Many? Don't think so. How many of you can rattle off for me the various things and buildings and blessings that the kings of Persia had? I'm not even talking about regular people. I'm talking about kings. You see, apart from God, things are forgotten. How many of you could tell me how many mighty men David had and what their names were? I can't. I go to God's eternal word. Have you thought about things like that? That Uriah, a man who was betrayed and murdered because of it, in eternity his name will exist. And his issue of faithfulness to his king. Because it's recorded in the word of God. This is the meaning in life. Isaac Watts puts it this way in a famous old hymn. The busy tribes of flesh and blood with all their lives and cares are carried downward by the flood and lost in following years. That's life under the sun. Time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. But the hymn doesn't end there, does it? What's the last stanza? Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, be thou our guard while troubles last, and our what? Eternal home. That is where meaning is found. In the eternal home of the King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior of saviors, the Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you in coming weeks to see real purpose and meaning Real worth for your life in the gospel, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with this word. And we ask, O Lord, that you would grant it to us to see areas in which life is meaningless to us. That we might affect it with the gospel. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.